The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Um, uh, For those of you who don't know, my name is Tobias. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. And uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be here on this Lord's Day and to be with you, the Lord's people. Um, And it's a privilege for me uh, to get to open up God's Word for us this morning as we continue, continue in our Advent series. Um, uh, this series that we've been tracing some of the major aspects of uh, the messianic ministry of our Lord. And uh, you'll remember uh, that we started our series uh, by considering Jesus in relation to the role of the prophet. And and then we followed that by considering uh, him in relation to that of the priest. And then last week, if you remember, we we, uh, looked at Jesus and the kingship. And so, so far in our series uh, this Advent, we've looked at texts from from Isaiah and Deuteronomy, uh, Hebrews and Ephesians, and we've seen how the Lord, through his incarnational ministry, perfectly fulfilled each of these three offices, the prophet, priest, and king. Well, this morning, as we continue our celebration of the Lord and his accomplishments, uh, we're going to do so by considering something a little, a little different. This morning, we're going to focus our attention on Jesus' fulfillment of God's purposes for mankind, and especially on the centrality and significance of his resurrection in light of these purposes. And as we go, we're going to pay special attention to just a couple of the more significant aspects of the Apostle Paul's message to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. But before we get there, I'd like to draw our attention first back to the beginning of the Bible, to the account of God's creation of man. And in particular, I want to draw us back to that disastrous moment in the garden when Adam fell so that we have that fresh in our minds as we consider the perfect and glorious work of Christ, the new man. So I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to read a couple of verses in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3. And then we'll flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start in Genesis 2, verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, uh, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, uh, if you're familiar with this, Um, chapter, then you know uh, that the serpent enters the garden. He approaches Eve and he tempts her. And so look over at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Let me start with verse 19. Paul says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and mighty God, uh, once again we bow before you, creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen, you who know the end from the beginning. We bow before you and we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you will, by your spirit, open our eyes and our ears to the truths that are therein. Soften our hearts to receive your message. Oh, Father, may the reality and the significance and the glory of the resurrection be made clear to us this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, let me begin uh, this morning by asking a few fundamental questions. What was God's purpose for mankind when he created him? What role was he meant to play? Did he and does he have any special significance among the Lord's creatures? Well, these, uh, these questions David seemed to be wrestling with 
when he wrote Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When he said, when I look up at the heavens, which your fingers made, and see the moon and the stars which you set in place, of what importance is the human race that you should notice them? Of what importance is mankind that you should pay attention to them? You see, these are fundamental questions that most of us ponder at some point in our lives, and we ought to consider them carefully. Now, on the one hand, we could respond by reciting that beautifully succinct answer the Catechism provides when it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? You remember what it says? It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And you know, this is a great answer. It's absolutely right. Our purpose as human beings was and is to bring glory to the one true God and to find our ultimate happiness in Him. And yet, while this is true, the question I'm really asking this morning has more to do with the how of this answer. In other words, what I'd like for us to consider right now is, if God's intent has always been for His human creatures to glorify Him and to enjoy Him, how did He intend for us to do so? What role in His great drama were we meant to play? And it seems to me that one way to answer this question is to reflect back on what we've already heard over the last few weeks and to consider that the roles Christ has perfectly fulfilled through his incarnational ministry, the roles of prophet, priest, and king, these were the roles Adam was set to play in the garden as God's image bearer and yet failed to do. Let me explain what I mean. You see, as a prophet, Adam was meant to live in subservience to God's word and to proclaim it. God's perfect and trustworthy word was intended all along to shape the whole of his existence. But instead of listening to God's word, he listened to the words of his wife, Eve, and back of her, the serpent. And like a false prophet, Adam traded the truth for a lie. And as a priest, Adam was meant to work and to protect God's garden, his holy sanctuary. And he was meant to minister all of creation's praises of the one true living God back up to him alone. But instead, full of hubris and a desire to be wise like the God he was intended to serve, he fell prey to the deceptions of the serpent, who was an unholy trespasser in God's sanctuary. And he was removed from that sanctuary, and he was barred from it upon pain of death. And friends, as a king, Adam was meant to exercise righteous rule over the world God had made. He was to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But rather than exercising this righteous rule in the name of the Lord, Adam allowed himself instead to be ruled 
by God's enemy and so failed as the Lord's appointed king. And of course, as the text we've already read from Genesis remind us, the result of this epic threefold failure on the part of Adam was just as the Lord had said it would be. The result was death. And so when the Lord found Adam hiding from him in the garden, in his righteous judgment, he pronounced a death sentence on him, saying to him in Genesis 3, 19, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And friends, it's important for us, here and now, to keep in mind that this wasn't an isolated judgment on Adam alone. God's pronouncement of death on him because of his disobedience and because of his failure to fulfill the Lord's design for humanity was a pronouncement of death on all of us. And so from that point on, from the time of Adam, we all as human beings have been subject to the reality and pain of death. And because of this, we tend to live our lives in fear of death, don't we? And we, know, we do that not only fearing our own death, but fearing the loss of those we love. After all, the grief we suffer at the loss of a loved one, or the remorse we're left to endure when a broken relationship is brought to an end by an unexpected passing without the sweet joy of reconciliation. Friends, these, these, are, these, are, these experiences are some of the most difficult things we can ever face in this life. And so I imagine that for many of us here in this room, it feels like death has a stranglehold on us, doesn't it? Like David, who said in Psalm 18, 4 and 5, the waves of death engulfed me. The currents of chaos overwhelmed me. The ropes of Sheol tightened around me. The snares of death trapped me. So friends, what do we do with this? Does the Bible provide any hope for us, any consolation, any lasting answer in the midst of such a dismal and morbid landscape? Well, the Apostle Paul was absolutely convinced that it does. And in verses 28 through 20, uh, 20 through 28 of 1 Corinthians 15, we see his confidence in the consoling power of the gospel for us who face death on full display as he draws us, his readers, to the reality and significance of the resurrection of our Lord. So what does he, what does he have to say about his resurrection? How does his, mes his message here in these verses provide us with comfort and hope? Well, I'd like us to look at what Paul says right at the beginning of this passage in verse 20. He says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now I imagine that if you're familiar with the writings of Paul, and this letter in particular, then his statement here about the resurrection isn't shocking. After all, this entire chapter is known for its focus on the resurrection. It's known as the, the resurrection chapter. And in fact, right from the very beginning of this chapter, 
Paul makes it abundantly clear to the Corinthians that the resurrection plays a central role in his understanding of the gospel, and he intends to deal with it thoroughly. And this is why we hear him refer to Jesus' resurrection in verse 4 as among the things of first importance which he had received and passed on. And yet, apparently, Paul had become aware that some Christians in Corinth had been denying the possibility of the resurrection of the dead. Christians had been denying the possibility of the resurrection of the dead. And of course, Paul, the apostle, who had been called on the road to Damascus by the risen Lord Jesus himself, he rightly understood that this was a ridiculous position for any follower of Christ to hold. And so in the first 20-ish verses or so of this chapter, we see him writing to demonstrate the absurdity of such a denial, saying things like, if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. And furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they haven't simply fallen asleep. They've truly perished. They've died. And we who have put our hope in Christ are most to be pitied. And you know, it's, it's clear, too, that Paul, as he goes on to draw uh, such a denial to its logical conclusion, it's clear that he recognized that denying the reality of the resurrection would lead his brothers and sisters to a life lived in vanity and selflessness, selfishness, to a life filled with the mere pursuit of the fleeting ple pleasures of the present without any hope of lasting victory or comfort. And this is why we hear him say later on in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And friends, it's on the heels of this devastating critique of a Christian denial of the resurrection of the dead that we hear Paul say in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, it was absolutely essential for Paul that the Corinthian Christians hear him affirm without any hesitation or ambiguity the reality of Christ's resurrection. But more than that, it was essential for him that they understand and embrace its significance for their own lives, especially as they face the realities of death. And so as he continues delivering his message, we see him begin to flesh out some of the major implications of Jesus' resur resurrection for us as followers of, uh, followers of Christ in verses 20 to 28. And there are two things he brings out in this passage that I especially want us to look at this morning. And the first is this, the resurrection of Jesus makes the resurrection of those who put their faith in him inevitable. Let me say that again. The resurrection of Jesus makes the resurrection of those who put their faith in him inevitable. Notice again what Paul says in verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. Did you catch that? He calls Jesus the first fruits. Here for us to understand what's going on here, we need to recognize that Paul is drawing on an agricultural metaphor that his readers would have been well aware of, one that played a significant role in the daily rhythm of their lives. The idea of the first fruits of the harvest. And, and we need to understand that the first fruits of the harvest were widely regarded as a trustworthy foretaste, a trustworthy foretaste of the whole harvest, a sort of first installment that pledges more of the same kind to come. To put it another way, the first fruits of the harvest were taken as representative of the character of the later full harvest. And it's this representational aspect of the first fruits that leads Paul, as he continues, to turn his attention briefly, just like we saw him do earlier this fall in our study of Romans 5, to turn his attention briefly to an analogy between Adam and Christ. Notice what he says in verses 21 and 22. He says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now kids, I, I know it's a limited analogy, but you could think of this idea of representation from the angle of team sports. I mean, it's obvious to us that when you play on a team, the actions of an individual player affect the outcome of the team as a whole, right? And if you've been watching this week, if you've been watching the World Cup, which I'm sure many of you have, uh, adults included, myself included, this idea of representation, it's on full display especially when the game comes to a penalty shootout. And when the success or failure of one player to make that final necessary goal will result either in victory or defeat for all of his teammates. And so in a similar way, what Paul's saying here is that Adam stood as our representative as human beings. And his actions in the garden affected all of us. Indeed, his failure brought all of us under the penalty of death. For as in Adam, all die. And you know, if this were all Paul had to say, then his message here wouldn't bring any comfort or hope, would it? Instead, his message would be little more than a callous confirmation of the death sentence we all already know we face. But friends, praise be, praise be to God. He doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say, death came through a man, full stop. He also says the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. And he doesn't leave us to ponder with bitterness and despondency the failure of Adam, merely saying, for as in Adam all die. No. He assures us instead that also in Christ all will be made alive. 
In other words, here Paul applies this idea of representation not only to Adam, but also to Christ, the new and risen man. And what he's saying here is that in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. There's a new head of humanity. We have a new representative. And what's true of him and his resurrection is and will be fully true of us as well. Brothers and sisters, the implication now of Christ representing us is that we have nothing to fear from death. For in Christ, death no longer holds sway over us. The Apostle Paul was convinced of this. And this is why we hear him say with such astounding confidence in Romans chapter 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you know, in the midst of Paul's clear and triumphant comments here about the representational character of Christ and his resurrection, I think it's easy for us to miss maybe a more subtle, yet no less deeply profound clue about how Paul views death in the light of resurrection. A clue that he gives us to help shape our own thinking about death. You see, he says in verse 20, if you look at it again, you'll notice that he doesn't simply say that Jesus is the first fruits without qualification. Instead, he says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this imagery of falling asleep was Paul's way of portraying the reality of death. But it's important for us to recognize that he used this imagery only to describe the reality of death for Christians. And this is why we hear him, for example, in verse 18, referring to the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth who had already passed away, as those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And so, friends, as we, as we bring all of this imagery of first fruits and sleep and representation together, we need to grasp that what Paul is saying here, he's saying something that is crucial and profoundly consoling. It's as if he were saying, brothers and sisters, don't you see? Think, think about what you know of the harvest and of the promise of the first fruits. Brothers and sisters, Christ is the first fruits. His resurrection is a foretaste of a glorious harvest. And by faith, you are guaranteed to be a part of that harvest. If you've confessed faith in Jesus, if you're therefore in him and not in Adam, united by faith to the risen Lord, then death is not the end. It is truly nothing more than sleep before a grand eternal awakening. And if you've been in any of my Sunday school classes, you know I love John Donne. And I love the words, his words, uh, when he says in his poem, Death be not proud, 
death be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Well, as we continue uh, this morning, there's just one other thing that Paul brings out in this passage that I'd like us to briefly touch on. And it's this. Jesus Christ, the first fruits, the new man, Jesus Christ is coming again. And he's coming in consummate victory. Now I know, of course, I'm not saying anything earth-shattering here. After all, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is a central aspect of Christian teaching that you're aware of, I know. And yet I think it's easy for us in the midst of Advent season to focus our attention solely on Christ's first coming and on his incarnational ministry here on earth. I think too that it's easy for us in the midst of our enduring pain and suffering and the experience of death that we continue to face. I think it's easy for us to lose sight of the surety of his return and of the ultimate victory that his coming will bring. You know, I think this is why we see Paul's focus shift in verses 25 to 28 onto the cosmic dominion that Christ will bring to fulfillment when he returns in glory. And although we don't have uh, time to go into all the various aspects of what he says in in these verses, I want you to notice especially what he says in verse 27. He says this, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Here in this verse, we see Paul drawing on a well-known psalm, Psalm 8. And we see him applying verse 6 of this psalm to the glorious work and coming of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this is significant. You see, Psalm 8 is a psalm that describes God's purposes for Adam, for man, that he was crowned with glory and honor, that he was given dominion over all that the Lord had made, and that everything was to be put in subjection under his feet. And yet, as we've already seen, Adam, our first representative, the old man, he failed to be faithful in this calling. And you know what? In him, we have failed too. But you see, Paul was convinced, along with the rest of the authors of the New Testament, that where Adam had failed, Christ had succeeded. And this is why, for example, when we hear the writer of Hebrews take up this same psalm, we hear him say in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, at present, thinking, looking out on, the, on humanity, At present, we do not yet see all things under his control. But we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by God's grace, he would experience death on behalf of of everyone. Brothers and sisters, did you hear that? He says in the midst 
of the pain and suffering we still experience because of Adam's failure, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor who by God's grace experienced death on our behalf. And so friends, what I think Paul would have us understand from our passage this morning is not only that our Lord's resurrection from the dead gives us unshakable proof of the certainty of our own resurrection. Praise be to God for that. But it also, in light of this psalm, he would like us to know that Christ, through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he has perfectly played the part of the new man, the needed faithful representative. He's fulfilled God's purposes for man and conquered the Lord's enemies, even death itself. And through his perfect faithfulness, he's remedied the failure of Adam. And friends, because of his faithfulness, when the Lord returns in glory, we will see the fruit of his victory on full display. And so we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul himself, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Brothers and sisters, in this season of Advent, as we celebrate our Lord's first coming and all that he accomplished, let us also hasten the day when he will come again in glory on the clouds of heaven to make all things new. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Once again, we bow before you. We bow before you in awe of your power and glory. We bow before you full of gratitude for your kindness to sinners. Oh, Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the perfect man. Father, we ask that you will help us by your spirit to live in the assurance of the resurrection, to live in the hope of the promise of resurrection, not because of anything that we have done, but because by faith we have been found in the one who was resurrected. We pray all this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.